Shalom, and welcome to Heretics Standing at Sinai, a podcast for those in or adjacent to the Jewish community who are searching for a place to deepen their spirituality without sacrificing their rationality. I am Rabbi J. Tel Rav, and each week we have a conversation about new ways to exist in the world as an intentional presence and of ways of making our lives mean something, whether you've been exploring Jewish spirituality for years, or this is your first time considering it, we're really glad you're here. It's been a while since I last posted an episode, but hopefully today's conversation will have made it feel like it was worth the wait. For those of you who are new to Heretics, we use a book called Open Secrets by Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Each week, I've invited a guest to join me as we read one of the fictional letters and then discuss the theological implications and how they fit into our lived experience of the world. This week, I'm very excited to tell you that my guest is the very author of our text, Rabbi Rami Shapiro. This came to be because I have been struggling, like so many of you, with the conditions of our world in the midst of a war with Israel and the explosion of global anti-Semitism. And as much as Rami has become one of my own Rebbe's, I wanted to ask him some questions about how to navigate these complexities while preserving my theology. I emailed him last week, and he returned my call in 15 minutes. And we set up this conversation, and I'm so grateful to him for making himself uh, so readily available to us. I'm also excited to present our episode today in two formats the audio format as usual, but also a video recording of my conversation with Rami. If you're listening right now, you can watch the video recording by going to Temple Sinai's YouTube page. You will notice that the conversation today is recorded in two sessions. Uh, and the reason for that is that halfway through our conversation, the internet service at Rami's home was, was interrupted. And so we had to schedule the second half of our conversation for several days later. There will be a wardrobe change in the middle. So you'll understand why we're suddenly wearing different clothing and, and I'm in a different room. And you'll also notice that during the weekend in between our recordings, Rami traveled to a weekend teaching session and came back with a pretty good head cold. So he'll sound a little congested during the second half of the episode, but just as engaging. Rami also sent me an excerpt of a soon-to-be-published work called Shiviti. It's a beautiful little instruction intention about how to walk through the world as a non-dualist. It's worth reading. It is copyrighted, but he gave me permission to share it uh, with anyone who would like it. So if you're interested, please reach out to me and I'll email you a copy. And again, another thank you to Rabbi Shapiro. And now, without further delay, I'm very excited to share my full conversation with Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Well, so here's how I want to start. Your Jewish journey is really interesting to me. I know I know what I've been able to stumble upon out there about you. I know that you spent some time in a congregation and that you're not now. I know some of the work you've done with the perennial wisdom folks out there, but I wondered if you could just sort of describe in whatever level of detail, how you come to be who and where you are now. <laughs> and this is a four hour podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, okay. You, you, you know, I'll, 
I'll wriggle a chad. I'll try to try to make this make this work. I mean, I, I was raised in a modern Orthodox home, which I thought, which I sort of outgrew in my teenage years. I became a Zen Buddhist, and that was my plan: was to go into Buddhism as a get, get a PhD in Buddhist studies and teach Buddhism. That was what I wanted to do, and I was studying Buddhism academically as an undergraduate, and. Um, personally as a student of a Zen master. And I was on retreat with the Zen master and uh, I was graduating from college. I'd been accepted to graduate school in Buddhist studies and I didn't mention it to him, but one of my professors did. And he took me aside and he said, that's a stupid thing to do. If you want to know, if you want to be a Zen Buddhist, be a Zen Buddhist, don't be a professor of Zen Buddhism. So he really pushed me to go to the monastery and study with him, learn Japanese, study with him, and, you know, become a Buddhist. And I don't know, if he hadn't said that, it was probably a romantic idea. But when he actually, you know, pushed me and said, this is what you should do, I blurted out without any forethought whatsoever. And I said to him, no, Roshi, I can't do that. I'm going to become a rabbi. And he was surprised. I was shocked because that was nowhere on my horizon that I knew of. And and he said, he was a Japanese guy, and he said, oh, be rabbi, be Zen rabbi. I said, I'll do that. And then I went to grad school in Buddhist studies, and he was right. I lasted a week. It was terrible. And I went to the religion studies office, and I said, I can't do this. This is awful. What else have you got? And they, what they had was a Jew, a Judaic studies professor who had no students. No one was interested in Judaic studies. Everyone was, it was the 70s. It was, you know, everything was Hinduism and Buddhism and nobody wanted to study East Western religions. So I knocked on his door and he said, what are you interested in? And I was interested tangentially in Mordechai Kaplan and Reconstructionist Judaism. And he goes, oh yeah, me too. Let's do that. So I did my master's in, in Reconstructionist. I did my thesis on Mordechai Kaplan, modern Jewish thought, and, and then went off to rabbinical school and then got a PhD. But when I graduated rabbinical school, I needed a job, but my theology was so, I don't know, you know, tinged, tainted something with Buddhism and Hinduism and the perennial wisdom and, and all this mystical stuff that there was no work. You know, no, first of all, I'm not a great team player. So being an assistant rabbi somewhere was probably not in the cards for me. But my understanding of God was so not in the mainstream that there was no place to even apply. So I I had been in the Air Force as a chaplain. I had some connections. And I ended up just using those connections to start my own congregation based on my own understanding of the divine and and reworking Judaism to fit my own experience. And I did that for 20 years. And then I was just tired of that. I, I guess, you know, I, I have great respect for anyone who can last 20. And then some, my, I have a friend who's, I think he's almost done it for 40 years. How long have you been in the congregational world? In, uh, in the congregational, about uh, 17 years, yeah. and about 12 of those here in Stamford, Connecticut. So it's, I mean, it's a it's a challenge. And anyone who can last 17 or 37 or whatever it is, I mean, wow. So I left that and 
You know, what I really wanted to do all along was to write. And so that's, you know, that's what I do now. But what, and I, I guess, end it by saying the, the, what drove me to Zen Buddhism as a teenager was an experience that I had in Zen meditation. And the experience was a realization that this is not how you put it in Zen, but how you'd put it in Judaism, that, or in Yiddish, alts is God, that everything is God. Or in Deuteronomy 4.35, ain't owed mil vado, there's nothing other than the divine. And I just knew it as a fact. I, I knew it from 16, 17 years old, from my own experience. And so now everything has to reflect that. And nothing has changed. I mean, I've had experiences that strengthen that conviction, but nothing that challenged it. It doesn't mean it's true. It's because I'm in a box, you know, sort of stuck on that. That's, that's the rut I'm in. But all my work uh, in rabbinical school, as a rabbi, then, now, in all my writing, everything focuses on that non-dual perspective that all existence is a manifesting of the singular reality, single reality that is God. Mm -hmm. If you were coming out of rabbinical school today, do you think you would have found a, a different landscape of, of progressive or reform synagogues that are, are more open to or, or hungry for that kind of theology? Yeah. Back then, when I graduated in 1981, back then there was a small group of people who were interested in this stuff. Now it's pretty common. Yeah. So, I mean, I, that's why I think I think one of the reasons I felt comfortable leaving the rabbinate, not just my synagogue, but leaving the, not having to focus on bringing that theology to Jews was, I mean, there were two reasons, but one was there are so many great people doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't on my shoulders. And, and the other one was Sometime in the 90s, I guess, I'm not great on my own chronology, but sometime in the 90s, I, I think it was, Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi took me aside, and he was one of my major teachers. And, and he said, and I still was a congregational rabbi, and, and he said that my rabbinate isn't with congregations. He said that you should be bringing Judaism to the non-Jewish world. He said, you should bring this the way the way all these Jews brought Buddhism to the Jewish world, you want to bring Judaism to the to the Hindus and the Buddhists, and and I I don't know if I've done that exactly, but he says you know your 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 ministry he didn't use that term, but your ministry is is you know not just Jewish people. Wow, so I I wonder if you could give me your elevator speech answer on explaining what is non-duality. I, I, you know, I, I get asked this a lot and I've been fumbling along creating my own, you know, short answer for someone who's not looking for a lecture. How do you respond? I, I think you oh, know, I want to know what, what do you say? <laughs> what do you say? What's your elevator's pitch on non-duality? Well, gosh, I really wanted to hear yours first, but what I see is something <laughs> along the lines of what you said a few moments ago, and that is that it has become clear to me that the the universe has the illusions of division and that that it's functional. It helps us get through our day to be able to reach over and, and pick up a pen. But if we're being sort of thoughtful about where it all originated, and I'm a, I'm a, a science nerd, if I've got their attention long enough, I'll, I'll reverse the timeline and go back 14 billion years until 
everything, the pen and me and the table and you, uh, we were all part of the singularity. And, and the, the expansion of that looks like division, but in fact, it really is just one solid entity. So that non-duality is a way of looking around the world and, and insisting on trying to stay in that space of seeing that, that, that unity. Yeah, that's a great elevator speech. I, I should have timed it. <laughs> I think I think you got it in under thirty seconds, which is what what basically you have to do. Yeah, I you know I, I think people like metaphor. You know, they need some kind of analogy or a metaphor, and I like the Hindu one of the ocean and the wave. So everything there's just one ocean, and the ocean has can't say infinite number of waves, but myriad numbers of waves, and each one is unique and distinct. And everything that you see, the pen, you and I, the universe around us, whether we like it or we don't like it, uh, whether it's good or bad, whatever it is, it's all there. It, it, everything we see is an ocean, is a wave of this infinite singular or non-dual ocean. And, and that to me is what non-duality is. What it isn't, and I used to stumble on that over this all the time, it's not oneness. Right, because I, I mean, people think, well, then everything is one, but and non, non-dual literally comes from the Hindu or the Sanskrit term, advaita. Vaita means one. Putting the a in front of it means not one, or no, vaita means two. Mm-hmm. Putting the a in front of it means not two. So it's not dual, but it's, but that's not the same as saying it's one. So you don't want to get hung up on, oh, then everything is the same. Good and evil are the same. Yeah. Everything is like tofu. You know, that, that's, you know, it's all the same thing. That's, that's not non-duality. Everything has its own uniqueness, but that uniqueness is a facet of whatever the ineffable reality is, whether it's yod Vavay or the Tao that can't be spoken or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And it's, you know, it's not the easiest thing for people to grasp. But what I like about it intellectually is that you don't have to give up on um, good and evil. You know, because, oh, then everything, you know, it's, if, if, then good and evil don't matter. Then there's no good and there's no evil. And so, you know, Hamas is, you can't say Hamas is bad. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you can say Hamas is bad. Right. You can say you know, killing babies is bad. And, and, you know, making peace is good, and they're not the same thing. So you can have that difference. But you can't say killing babies and, you know, giving birth to babies are uh, not part of the same reality. They're, they're both part of the same reality. So I... I've, I've sort of recognized that as well, that that once a person has a transcendent moment, whether it's an atzilut or, or or whatever other word they might choose to describe it, and then they they return. And, and by the way, the, the first time I encountered the, the mountain, no mountain, mountain teaching was from Jay Michelson, but I know that he was just using it from other, other religious traditions as well, Zen Cohen's and whatnot. But- Donovan. Sorry? Remember Donovan? Yes, 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 yes. First there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. Yes, there was a butterfly. Anyway. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) 
So I, I've appreciated that once you have that that no mountain experience, that you then return and you realize there is a mountain. You know, there is two. There, well, there's not one, and yet you you have a new relationship with the mountain. Yeah. Uh, so I was really curious about something you just said because it seems like once a person has that experience, they reach sort of a brayra point, a, a decision point, and they can either say recognizing that that there is a now I'm, I'm worried about using the word oneness once there is a unity to to reality one could say and therefore it's all it's all a fabricated illusion good and evil are fabricated the universe doesn't give one spit about whether or not babies are beheaded and so the nihilistic or 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 a meaninglessness could be a path that one person might choose and so I wonder if you'd speak about why once you have that that experience and return to the world of of functional duality, why do you feel drawn towards the other end, which is the pursuit of good? Yeah, well, that's assuming I feel drawn to it. <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, well, two things. First, yeah, the universe or or God, you know, we, 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 this makes it even more complicated. God doesn't care. You know, in, in that absolute abstract, God is everything. You know, Isaiah 45, 7, I create good, I create evil, you know, I, I create light, I create dark, I create good, I create suffering. In that, in that absolute sense, God doesn't care. God, God creates not because God desires to create. God creates because it's God's nature to manifest. So if we stick with the ocean and wave. Uh, analogy, the ocean is going to have be calm in some spots and uh, tsunamis in other spots. And it's not that the ocean chooses. I don't think God has free will. God's not a being. God is being itself. God is, you know, existence itself. And so it's got all these uh, aspects to it. And hu human beings label them good and bad. So in a sense, good and evil are constructs. They don't exist in nature. You know, when we talk about what's evil, I, I, when you look at cancer, cancer isn't evil. Cancer is a horror to people who have cancer and those who love them. But that's a that's that's a human construct that this is a bad thing. Nature doesn't know it's bad. It's just doing what it does. When you watch the Nature Channel on television and you see the gazelle being eaten by the jaguar, I don't know if that's actually what happens. But that's not evil. That's lunch. And so they have to eat. Now, I, I root for the little, you know, the, the animal that's being eaten. I go, run, run, you know, because that's a human emotion. But nature doesn't care, right? And, and God doesn't care. Now, does that mean I shouldn't care? No, I don't think that's what it means at all. You could even make the case that since I am a manifesting of God, I am the way God cares, right? You, you can make that case that that because God has to manifest all possibility in, in the natural world, and humans are part of that manifesting, and humans have the capacity for compassion as well as evil, then, you know, humans are the way that God manifests uh, com uh, good and evil, you know, compassion and, and kindness and cruelty and, and you know, the, of, of the opposites. 
So you, you could make that case, though maybe I'm getting in the weeds here. But when you awaken to the interconnectedness of everything, I think you are in you're it's almost a compulsion. It's it's not really a choice. When when I when you recognize your connectedness to something, you can only feel compassion for that thing. I mean, that's what Emmanuel Levinas taught, the Jewish philosopher of France. When you see the face of another being, now he's talking about human beings, but I think it's true of animals, trees, plants. You know, I mean, when, when you see the face of another being, you really just can't harm that being. I, I think that's why someone, you know, that, that's why it's easier when, when people kill one another, it's easier to do it when it's faceless or when the other person's face has been erased in your consciousness because you're no longer a human being. You're, you know, what when you look at the propaganda, pick, pick your favorite war, the other is always dehumanized. They're turned in into fact, vermin. Pardon yeah, me? I was just thinking, you said you spent some time in the Air Force and I was uh, a chaplain in the Navy. And I know that that a significant element of, of basic training is... Uh, conditioning the the recruits, the the foot soldiers, whoever they turn out to be, to do exactly what you're saying. Because if they were to look into the face of the other on the opposite side of the the battlefield, they couldn't possibly do what's being asked of them. Yeah, there's an interesting study. Of course, off the top of my head, I can't cite it, but there's an interesting study about how few soldiers actually kill the other soldiers. They Could shoot high, they shoot low, they don't shoot at all. There was this. A study of weapons found in the battlefield during the Civil War, how many of them had never been fired. And they found that it wasn't that the soldiers threw their guns down and ran. It's that they kept reloading. They didn't need to reload. It's just they were saying to them, I, I think I better reload, as opposed to shooting. And then the enemy got close and they had to retreat. So, yeah, when you see the whites of their eyes, remember that phrase? You can't shoot. So we have to do something to make the other not human. And, and we do that. I mean, that's, that's what happens. And, and you know, religions do that. All, all kinds of narratives do that to the other. We name them in such a way as to make them less than human so we can kill them. But when you recognize their humanity, if we're talking about people, or you just, as Levinas says, you can see the face of the other, I would put it, in the language and say, you see the face of God, and then you can only treat them with respect and kindness. And do you think that the, the, those in the world who are not seeing God in the face of the other, and you can put, you can describe any number of humanity, in fact, probably lots of humanity, if not most of it. I wonder if you think that they are uh, actively choosing to, to look askew so that they're not confronted with the face of God? Or is it more a matter of passively never being taught to do the 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 alternative, which is to look right at the other and to to honor and to bear some of their their responsibility? I, I think there's a third option. I think they're being actively trained not to see it. Uh -huh. I think they're <clears throat> we're taught that X isn't us. Mm -hmm. And and we're the people and they're the monsters, whatever, whoever they are. <clears throat> and, and that's, you know, we're, we're God's, I'm going to say God's chosen, but I didn't mean it that way. We're, we're God's preferred 
you know, God is with us. God wills it. And that's what they used to say during the Crusades. And therefore, God's not with the other guys. So you can you can slaughter those guys. So I think we're actively trained to be blind. But it's it's not that an individual, I mean, there are always exceptions, but I don't think the individual trains herself, himself, themselves to blind themselves to another's humanity. I think they're raised in such a way that the other is other. And it can be otherized by religion, by race, by gender, by, you know, politics, politics nationality, you know, it, the list is endless. The real challenge, and this is something that's, I mean, if there's any hope for humanity, the revolution that has to happen is a revolution of consciousness that allows us to see the, the face of the, the other person in such a way that they're not other right? With that capital O. And that requires us to see through our narratives, to see our story as story, and to realize that we're being propagandized and that we're, our brains are being manipulated constantly by, <clears throat> again, religion and politicians and media and, and all this stuff. The way um, that you articulated this in Holy Rascals blew my mind. I, I had never come across the presentation in such a such a clear way. And I have uh, purchase copies of that for so many millennials who tell me they have no need for organized religion. And, you know, when I have the opportunity to be in sacred conversation with them, and I, and I, I also quoted something from that book at the High Holidays about the difference between healthy religion and unhealthy religion. And, and I think that so many of these young people recognize the truth of what you just said, a revolution in the way that we see others, and they see these these mega religions, the Cokes and Pepsis of religion, as is actively working yeah. against that. Uh, I guess got home yesterday, and boy, are my arms tired. <laughs> mm. And I got sick. Uh, Somebody must have had a cold, and I've got it. But <clears throat> I'm drinking hot stuff all day long, so I can talk with you. Yeah. So you're going to have to make some kind of this is part two because I'm not wearing the same clothes. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I was just thinking about that this afternoon. When I put it together, I'll, I'll acknowledge playfully that those more astute observers will notice the change in background and clothes. And I was uh, thinking about shaving my beard off. <laughs> that would have been really funny. Um, but I didn't. It took me forever to grow it. I'm not <laughs> I had a beard almost as full as yours a couple of years back, and I loved it. Nobody else did. And my wife got got final say. And so I, I trimmed it off and maybe someday I'll, well, I'll I can tell that this is not going to be all that easy for you. So I, I additionally appreciate you giving me just a little more time. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to not do it. And and I have a my own podcast is tonight, and I didn't want to cancel that because oh. the producer spent so much time booking the guests. So I didn't want to let her down. Wow. Well, so. maybe maybe I'll jump right in, and yeah. and and then I can let you go whenever yeah you need to. So I wanted to circle back because I was really struck by, and it, it's been sitting with me since we talked last time, and I don't understand something that you said. You made a distinction between oneness and unity and the fact that oneness doesn't mean that everything is the same. And I was, I stumbled upon, as I was thinking about it this week, I stumbled upon a, something that David Cooper wrote when he said that oneness, a unity 
that cannot be divided, things that in relative reality appear to be polar opposites, like light and dark, hot and cold, male and female, determinism and free will, heaven and earth, good and evil, and so forth, they are in absolute terms inevitably contained in the oneness of boundlessness. And I wondered if you would just take a few moments and try to say again or differently what you were clarifying last week when we were talking about non-duality and the and the the difference between non-duality and I guess oneness. So I don't know what I said last week. <laughs> I may have totally disagreed with myself this week. I have no idea. What I what I what I'm thinking now is <clears throat> When I think of the term oneness, I don't want to equate the idea that good and evil are the same, right? It's all the same thing. It's all one. It's all because that that's not what I'm getting at. And that doesn't sound like um who who were you quoting just a second oh, ago? That, David Cooper. No, he David was Cooper. Yeah, that's not that's not what David was saying either. So so let me let me put it this way. I used to try to teach this to little kids, because that's the most fun thing, is to try to teach these ideas to eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds who are too sharp to be fooled by these ideas. And one of the things we used to do, and I don't think I talked about this last week, stop me if I did, but I give them magnets. I used to give them the little thin, uh, they were were very, very thin magnets that you could cut with scissors. And we would play with magnets and there was a positive pole and a negative pole. And then we, I would talk to them and I say, well, you know, positive is good. That's positive. Negative, no, not so good. We don't like negative. Let's get rid of the negative. Let's just cut it off. Who needs negative? Let's just be positive. So we cut off the negative side. And then we say, okay, now we don't have the negative, but of course it's a magnet. So you still have a negative. Oh, we just didn't cut enough. So we cut some more. And quickly you discover you can't cut off the negative, no matter what size your magnet is a magnet has a positive pole and a negative pole, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's the nature of a magnet. So that's how the universe is structured. It's non-dual. It's not good versus evil. It's good and evil are part of a greater whole, if you like. That's great. That's really helpful. And, And that's the way it goes. Or, oh, I had a spoon here, I thought. Okay. Or you take a spoon, and a spoon... If I had one, you know, the the part of the spoon that holds the soup is concave. But if you flip it over, it's convex. You can't have a spoon that's just concave. It doesn't work. It has to be both at the same time. I loved, we didn't talk about this last week, but I think you used the magnets in Open Secrets. And I Mm. also really loved, rather than the spoon, to help us understand the relationship between Yesh and Ain, you use the soup bowl. And without the the, the emptiness inside, it isn't a bowl. And without the the firmness of the the container, it isn't a bowl. And so the Yesh and the Ain make the bowl. Yeah, you have to have both. I I was once in... Oh, God, my brain is just shot somewhere in the southwest near the Grand Canyon, teaching at a synagogue where the mountains are just gorgeous. It's New Mexico somewhere, but higher than Santa Fe. Maybe it's Taos, I think. Mm-hmm. And I was teaching in Taos and, and again, little kids. And we were just outside looking at the mountains 
and I was just raving about how beautiful they were. And I said to them, you know, the valleys suck. I mean, the mountains are so cool, but the valleys, eh, it'd be cooler to have more mountains. Wouldn't it be cool if we could fill in the valleys and just have the mountains? And the kids are looking at me like, what an idiot. <laughs> if you filled in, if you had the mountains and you filled in the valleys, you just have flat. So they've tolerated me raving about that for a little bit. But eventually they said, Rabbi, that's stupid. You know, adults would go, I'm just, I paid for this lecture. I'm just <laughs> going to listen. But the little kids, they don't have patience for that. <clears throat> so they said, Rabbi, that's stupid. And I said, why? And they said, you need the valleys in order to have the mountains. And then it's like, aha, you know, uh -huh. <laughs> those Talmudic moments. Uh -huh. yep. you need, right, you need, you need both of these. And so you have to appreciate both. And then I use that as a segue into what, I think, though I probably invented it, is the Jewish version of sky gazing, you know, uh, singing, you know, El Haharim, Me'ayin Yavo Ezri, you know, I lift up my eyes unto the mountains from whence does my help come. But one way to read Me'ayin Yavo Ezri is Me'ayin from the emptiness, from the nothingness, from the divine emptiness is where my my aid comes. And so you lift up your eyes, of course, where I live, hills, and I used to live in Miami of speed bumps. That was the <laughs> that was the elevation, you no know, six inches. But when you live in a place where there's beautiful hills or mountains, like in, in, in Tibet, where they practice sky gazing, where you rest your eyes on the peaks, you know, you're down below, but you rest your eyes on the on this where the sky and the peaks seem to meet. And you just meditate on that spot. <clears throat> your your, I don't know. I guess you could say your consciousness expands. You enter into what we call mochin the godlut, spacious mind, and you just your mind opens, and you feel this connectedness with everything. That's where your help comes from, if you like, mm -hmm. from that empty or that vastness. And that, so I, I use that as a way of introducing them to that kind of meditation because they had the the props were all around them. You know, they had these mountains, but the mountains and the valleys go together. The the you know, if you're in the ocean, the wave and the trough go together. The good and the bad go together. There's there's <clears throat> sorry, I'm I'm kind of bad cold. There's there's no alternative. It that's the way the universe is structured, and that's the way God is structured, and that's what it says in Isaiah forty five seven. Where God says, I create light, I create darkness, good and evil. It's it's all me, which is very hard for people to grasp because they want a God who's good. So that's really helpful because I think it's a, a perfect segue to where I was where I want to go next. And that is the the tension or or maybe the I don't know, the impression of tension, unnecessary tension between the universalism of non-duality and the particularism of a dual world. And, and I guess specifically, I thought maybe it would be helpful to think for a moment or hear you think about the nature of Jewishness. And I, I, I liked the, the use of language that you talked about how religions are, are all true. You know, they've all got different ways of saying the same thing and some say it better than others. I think that was the beginning of, of Holy Rascals. But, but I wonder, is there a point where, where a mystic who who appreciates that that non-duality, that universal truth, the perennial wisdom, 
gets to a point where the divisions that we create for functionality become silly or unnecessary. Uh, why, why is Judaism still meaningful to you? Uh, why haven't you gone past that, that, that artificial division that we create? Well, this is the way I think it works. Someone who is, and I'm not talking about myself, but someone who is a mystic, someone who really has that awakening, I would imagine some of them have an awakening and go, well, it's all crap, right? Mm -hmm. But then I don't think that's a true awakening. I mean, they, especially if they say it that way, mm -hmm. because then they've really made a, a dualistic distinction. There's truth and there's crap. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not non-dualism. A non-dual awakening would see all the different religious positions as, I don't know, reflections of, of a truth or ways of, of trying to articulate the ultimately ineffable reality that, you know, but I think that when you have an awakening that into the true nature of reality, then you realize that all these different religions are stories that attempt to get at that reality, at their best, attempt to get at that reality. Mm -hmm. And when you know that, then you can enjoy the story. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Maybe that will help. I took a, I led a retreat at a Catholic retreat center. It was a Jewish retreat, but we rented out a Catholic retreat center. And this ha only happened to me once because I rent out a lot of Catholic retreat centers. <laughs> They're very inexpensive and they <laughs> usually accommodate you for, you know, kosher style, right? They're very nice. And, but they do have crosses around and crucifixes and stuff, but sometimes they, they go out of their way to try to make it you comfortable, though that doesn't bother me personally. But anyway, at this place, they had a big, beautiful church on the property. We weren't using it. We were renting just classroom space. But a number of people on the retreat said, don't go to that church. We don't want to go in that church. It was really like, oh, the church is too scary. And I said, well, we have nothing to do with the church, and we're, we have this classroom. That's where we're meeting. So don't worry about it. But once they put the idea in my head, I just, it was really just bugging me. The whole me. rascal in you got to just, yeah, I couldn't let it go. So Motzei Shabbat, we were done with the day. We did our Havdalah service. And I said, you know, the program's over for the day, uh, but I'm going to church. There's no service. This, the place is empty. But I'm going to go in there and meditate. And if anybody wants to come and meditate, you can join me. So to their credit, almost everyone went. And the church had, because I'd been there many times before with other groups, the church had a very powerful crucifix, a, a, the true suffering Christ. I mean, this, this Jewish guy was having a bad day on the cross. And we sat in a dimly lit church. And I said, you know, just look at Jesus on the cross and call out, if you feel like it, whatever thoughts come to mind. But don't, don't give me history. Don't call out blood libel and persecution. And, you know, I, I'm not interested. Look at Jesus on the cross and call out what emotions it elicits in you as a human being, seeing this human being nailed to the cross. And though she fellow Jew, 
hanging on the cross because the Romans did that to him. And people were a little hesitant, but then someone said fear. And then someone said, they went through, I mean, not that I can remember, this was 20 years ago, but someone said fear, someone said suffering, compassion, whatever they were feeling. They went through a whole range of human emotions. And then I said, okay, so you're looking at the crucifix, all of these emotions are coming up for you. Which emotions don't you recognize as being your own feelings, your own human sense? And of course, they said, well, we have all of these emotions. I said, well, then why is this so frightening? What scares us is the secondary uh, story we overlay on the crucifixion. And that's the story of the church and the persecution of Jews by the church. And I mean, I, I, I am no fan. So I have a I have a complete narrative why everything that's wrong right up to, you know, November, you know, and how the the violence against Jews, not just in America today, but around Europe is all you can trace it all the way back to the church. <clears throat> so I am not, you know, I'm not ignorant of our our history with the church and its horrible effect on us as a people. But just looking at this as a human phenomenon, why can't you experience the humanity of the crucifixion? And they did. And, and, and I think when you, when you see it from that, that universalist, humanist, humanistic perspective, you feel the connection and then the story takes on a different, then you can experience the story in a very different way. And you can find some, some value in it. And then you can retell, and I won't because it goes on, but you can retell the Christian story in a way that is very beneficial to anyone who's suffering. I mean, I'll just, I mean I, I've spent years in Buddhism. I love Buddhism. I'm also troubled by Buddhism like everything else. But the Buddha never had a bad day. You don't, you don't see the Buddha. You know, there's a there's like a statue of the crying Buddha, but mostly the Buddha's just mellowed out. And, you know, you don't see the crucified Buddha. But if you're having a really bad moment in your life where, where you just feel nailed to the cross, you can't go to the Buddha and say, you know, show me an image that I can relate to in that moment. We have Jews. We have Job. You know, we can look at that, but, you know, where in Buddhism can I find that suffering Buddha? I don't really see that. Yeah. But here I've got the suffering Christ, and uh, and we can make a case for Job, though, again, this is long-winded, but here's Christ, uh, you know, Jesus on the cross, and in the first gospel, which is Mark, historically the first gospel, the only thing Jesus says on the cross is the verse one of Psalm 22, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So here's this guy, everything is going wrong. And he says to God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, who hasn't felt that? Yeah. So here's this human story that you could relate to. Now, the rest of it about the resurrection and everyone's got to believe in him to go to heaven. That's nonsense. So from the mystic perspective, you can tap into the humanist element of these stories and free yourself from the stuff that's debilitating, that's that's tribalistic. And so with Judaism, it's the same. I keep kosher, not the way my parents did, 
and not for the same reasons my parents did. I'm I'm in some I'm a vegetarian, so I'm much more strict than my parents were. But I don't do it because God says, and that's why my parents did it. I do it because when I recognize that everything is a manifesting of the one thing and that cows and I are equally manifestations of the divine, I can't eat them. Right? <laughs> so well, that's uh, actually a great, a great point. I, for those who will be listening before our conversation, you shared with me an excerpt from, from Shiviti, this beautiful little section on, on utilizing that notion of, of lifting up in front of your eyes almost a lens or, or a filter so that everywhere you look, you're seeing God. And that when you, when you use that and you look at others, you necessarily have to see the face of God looking back. And when you do that, you're, you're saddled with, you're, you're compelled to treat them with a, a higher level of, of divinity, appreciation, respect, mutual, mutual respect. And I, I love the teaching and I use it a lot in, in all sorts of ways. And I wonder if we can move this conversation. You took us there a moment ago. I'm going to bring us right back. Uh, and that is where, where the teachings of non-duality start to sort of have the rubber hit the road. Lately, I've been bumping up against a lot of complicated reactions. People who love the idea of non-duality and who totally understand the teaching of Shiviti, they say, yeah, I can totally see God everywhere in the face of, you know, the, the checkout girl at the, at the, the local store or the, the, the ass who just cut me off on High Ridge Road. But then you get to the question of Hamas or something along those lines. And they say, whoa, whoa, that, you know, that that's just too far. So how does how does the demand of non-duality begin to to really work once you start to bring it out into the world where it's full of big feels and 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 danger, real danger? Yeah, it doesn't work. No, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, there's there's a couple of ways of looking at it. I mean, one, you can take Gandhi's approach. Remember, Gandhi had this dialogue with Martin Buber, and Gandhi said. You know, the Jews should just walk into the gas chambers and just nonviolence is the absolute. And you should just walk in and Hitler will feel bad about it and he'll get over it. I mean, it's, you know, that's ridiculous. I think what non-duality does is, and maybe this is just my way of dealing with the problem. When I look at, it could be Hamas, it could be other things, but when I look at someone who is capable in the name of their God, because Hamas is, is, this is not a secular organization, right? I mean, there is evil done in the, in, in the name of you know, secularism, certainly. But Hamas is Islamic terrorism. I mean, this, these people are doing jihad. They, and if they die, they're martyrs. In the name of their God, they're slaughtering people. And you can see the same thing, just so we're careful here. You can see the same thing, though not to the same degree, maybe, but, you know, okay, among extremists in Judaism and extremists in Hinduism and in Buddhism, even, and certainly in Christianity. I mean, these people exist everywhere. Who So, so you know, how can you look at a baby and not see the divine? And which they couldn't. They saw a Jew and their story told them that they... They saw a demon. They saw a, not just a subhuman. They saw something that was that was you know anti 
Allah, anti-divinity, anti-holiness, that had to be exterminated. What happened to that person? What infection, what, what, what disease was injected into their heart, soul, mind by their religion? Now, I'm not talking about normative Islam. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about their their version of Islam, where they could go in and and they'll say, uh, "La ilaha illallah." There's nothing, you know, uh, there is no god but Allah. When the Sufis say it, you know, I studied Sufism a little, and when we would chant in zikr, "La ilaha illallah," what we were taught, what I was taught was, we're saying. There's nothing but God. We're saying, Ain ode milvado. There's nothing other than the divine. Mm-hmm. But they're not saying that. They're saying, you know, there's just our God and you're all infidels and God wants you dead. I have pity for them. I have compassion for them. I also know that they are such a danger, not just to Jews, to other um, Muslims, to other human beings, that they have got to be uh, either captured and imprisoned and put away. Uh, or killed. Mm-hmm. And that's simply the nature of reality. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, when there's a, a disease that's, ra- you know, I, I didn't have a lot of compassion for COVID. <laughs> we had to kill it with, with you know, what do you call it? Paxlovid or yeah, yeah, Paxlovid, whatever it was. I mean, I, I injected bleach because that's what my president told me, I think. But, yeah. but we had to kill it. So here's, you know, here's a terrible mind virus that has to be stopped. If you can stop it through education, fine. If you can stop it through imprisonment, isolation, fine. But it may have to be killed. So but- they, you're describing the the extreme of not seeing God in the face of the Opposite other. Opposite of to the yeah. extreme. And yeah. so I wonder, though, it, it, does it happen in your mind that if that's one extreme uh, of sacrificing the, the the humanity of the other, in fact, an element of your own humanity. On the other end, is there any way in which the ultra liberals or or the even, I mean, I, I call myself a bleeding heart liberal all the time. Is there a way in which we also refuse to see the face of God when looking around at the rest of the world? Are oh, we- sure. I mean, we, I, we, I mean, I, I see two examples off the top of my head. One, a lot of people that I'm running into who are bleeding heart liberals don't bleed for Jews, mm-hmm. right? Because of intersectionality and anti-racism and a lot of other ideologies that came out of uh, the uh, coming out of universities, certain universities, uh, they don't see the humanity of Jews, let alone the divinity of Jews. Uh, they tend to be what I consider racist. They see everyone according to racial definitions and not individuality. And even though 51% of Israelis are brown um, and they're not white and they're not European, you know, they see us all, they see all Israelis as white colonizers from Europe. So they have a tremendous prejudice. <clears throat> so, so they're, they're trapped in, in that, you know, mind virus. That's a good and, example. You said there's a second one too. That was a great example. The second one is, and and I I don't have that one, but I I have this one, Trump, and Trumpists and the new Speaker of the House, mm-hmm. who I mean, I mean I have a hard time looking at this guy and listening to him and knowing what he believes, 
And, you know, saying, you know, Shiviti, Adonai, Lenegdi, Tamid. No, not this guy. Right. You know, they want to destroy democracy. They want to destroy. I mean, I would think they're, they're I mean, I'm completely over the top here. Racist, anti-Semite, misogynist, you know, all, all these things. Uh, I mean, anti-gay, I mean, anti-trans, I mean, how can that be? But I see it the same way. He's been infected and his his community of believers are infected by a religion that is giving them a story that erases the divinity of most humans. It seems the the essence of duality, which, which I don't know if it's in all cases, but the duality seems to be a zero sum game that if there's two things that for me to have all I want, it's going to have to come out of some of what you want. And that seems to be the core message or narrative of conservative politics these days, that the risk is that if you are open hearted and generous, then you will come out behind, uh, you will yeah. lose. Right. And, and that to me feels like the opposite of non-duality. Yeah, that's that. I think that's true, and, and I think the problem is, I, I think you could say, and and we could call me back next week, and I'll say no, I'm wrong. But I think you could say that mainstream religion suffers from uh, a a fundamental um, dualistic worldview that really does divide everyone. I mean, I mean, this is true, may, maybe mostly of Abrahamic religions. But, you know, we're the chosen. I know Jews don't, oh, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. You know, every every weekend, mm -hmm. we're the chosen. I mean, we don't, we have a different nigun, but it could be, nah, 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 nah. Yeah. I mean, that really is what yeah. we're saying. We're chosen. You're not. Too bad. Right. We've got, God only gave one revelation. It's ours. God chose us to have the promised land in perpetuity, doesn't matter who is living there. I mean, look at the mindset of settlers, Jew, you know, the settler, extreme settler Judaism. Their mindset is just the same. They go over and, and do horrible things to Palestinians. And now the soldiers just let it happen. And I mean, there's a sickness in, in Israel also. Yeah, yeah. And people, Jews will turn a blind eye to that. And they'll have a whole story about why that's okay. Now, I, I think this is true, and if you know differently, you should tell me so I won't repeat it again. But when I was in the Chabad world, I was told that only Jews have souls, that other non-Jews, non-Jewish human beings have animal souls. They have souls like cows. Mm -hmm. So you can't mistreat them because you can't mistreat a cow, but they don't have real souls like, like you and I do. I mean, that's so sick. Yeah. That's the same sickness. That's Which why religion is Chabad also uh, at its at its genesis seems to me to be the the delivery of modern non-duality into the into the Jewish theological canon. You know, as the Baal Shem Tov and his certainly his successors delivered theology, Chabad again. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Chabad at its core teaches Ein Od Milvado, and and then the the practice is is you know often somewhere else. And that's right. True. Well, oh. I think what happened, yeah. And, and we could make a case for, well, they were persecuted, they, they were angry, and they said, oh, they don't have souls, and they're just, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But but it's there. Yeah. So there's a disconnect between the mystic teachings of, you know, the Alta Rebbe and, and Dove Bear and, and all these great teachers. But when you look 
at the more practical aspect of it, they countenance all kinds of horrible things. But you see the same horror in Islam, Christianity, Judaism. Yeah. I mean, the whole caste system in India. I mean, there's a lot of crap. I, I wrote a book about the golden rule. And, and one of the chapters is, how do you get around the golden rule? And you just create a worldview that has a God who says, yeah, do the golden rule, unless, of course, we're talking about women. Because, you know, do one to others. Of course, our, our, our way of doing it is what's hateful to you. Don't do to someone else. That's Hillel. Unless it's a woman. And we even have a prayer in orthodoxy. Thanks, God, for not making me a woman. And then we try to change it. Oh, it doesn't mean that it's not. <clears throat> There's no guy in orthodoxy who man, I wish, you know, he made me a woman. No, because women are second class. So every religion has this problem. And back to where we started before, if you can see that it's all made up, you know, that it's all of human origin, that this stuff reflects misogyny on the part of the patriarchy, you don't have to buy into it. You can say, this is crazy. I mean, my <clears throat> my parents kept kosher and ate veal because it's kosher. I can't think of, well, off the top of my head anyway, I can't think of any more horrible thing to do to an animal than torture it in order to make it ripe for veal. Yeah. yeah. What a horrible thing. And yet we have you know, that you can't cause an animal unnecessary suffering. What are you doing? Yeah. Oh, God said it's fine. Yeah. Really? No. Some rabbi ended up going out and tasting veal from some other place. Because, oh, this is good. We got to yeah. eat this. And yeah. let me let me fix the rules. I mean, religion is nuts. But I if you can uh, play with it, you can play with it better. Yeah. I used your quote on Yom Kippur when I uh, shared with the congregation that that all religions are made up. The problem is not that they're made up. The problem is that they can't admit that they're made up. Right. And that, you know, that really spoke to me that we take ourselves so enormously seriously, certain that we've got it right, that it it really precludes the possibility of any any collaboration with someone who thinks differently. Yeah, yeah. But if you know it's made up and you can have the courage to make it up better, it's still going to be made up and it's never going to be perfect, but you could really, yeah, you know, make it so it's not as horrific. And then it would evolve as our ethics evolve. Mm -hmm. It's where I've been putting a lot of my energy lately. And I have to come up with better branding, but I've been calling it do-it-yourself Judaism. But the idea being that we've got a great technology in our in our prayer, in our in our rituals, in our in our traditions, but they don't always speak to to our experience. And so if you reach a point in your life where you need to be marking a, a moment, uh, retirement or moving to a new home or, you know, whatever, finally empty nesters, it, it is perfectly valid to find mechanisms within our tradition to make them fit your needs. And it doesn't matter if it's not something that, I don't know, the rabbi down the block would have, would have gotten excited about. Right. And it's, it's, beginning to speak to people. I think they're starting to understand the permission to not just open up your theology for re-examination, but to take ownership of, of the traditions that were handed to you. You know, people ask me all the time, are you kosher? And my answer is absolutely. Because, you know, and we talk about the word kosher meaning acceptable. I think very carefully about what's acceptable to enter my mouth. And by, by accepting certain things, fast food, Fast food's not kosher for me. And you know, just as an example, but I really appreciate the, the, the demand 
on a progressive Jew for for engaging in that that decision or discernment process in an ongoing way. It's much more in well, I think it's much more interesting to think about what it is to be kosher than my parents who just bought a box and it had you know a kosher sign on it. They never thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if there's anything that we've spoken about, you know, sort of in a way of, of letting you bring us to, to a close. Is there anything that you think you'd want to share based on the conversation we've had about, about bringing non-duality to, to the masses, about implementing non-duality in a dualistic world, about trying to maintain one's non-duality in a scary moment in history for, for modern Jews? Anything on your mind? In that, no, or I, <clears throat> I mean, I'm res- I wrestle with this all the time. I, I think I, w- I would say two things. One is practice. That non-duality, as an idea, you can knock it around like you would in a you know a college dorm, and and I love the ideas and you know reading all this stuff, but experiencing it. And and that's already a, a misnomer. When, when I say the word experiencing it, that already implies there's someone there who's experiencing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so so it's already a paradox because my own experience of non-duality, I wasn't there when it was happening. It's reconstructed after it's passed. But there are techniques in, in Judaism and in other traditions that you can sort of prime the pump so that there are opportunities that happen by grace. You can't, you know, oh, you know, it's four, it, it's four minutes after four, it's time for non-duality. I'll be right back. Boom. You know, you can't make that happen. Yeah. But you could say, I'm going to practice this at a set time, or I'm going to do the shiviti throughout the day or whatever it is. And you're sort of priming mental pump so that, there might be a moment where something happens. You know, in my Zen training, or anyone just reads books about Zen, you can read all these stories. No one ever gets enlightened on the Zen cushion. You know, they sit for years and they walk outside and a leaf falls on the ground and that's what does it. Now, if they hadn't sat for years, the leaf might have just meant nothing, but they were primed for it. There's a great story that, that Daniel Matt translates in his excerpts of Zohar that it just struck me about the, the lover who goes every day to the marketplace and sits outside the, the castle gates. And he knows that his, his partner is up in the, the, the tower. And every so often she opens the, the, the blinds or the, 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 what do you call them, the shutters and gazes down and makes eye contact and then withdraws back in. And he looks around and nobody else has had that experience because they weren't primed for that moment. They hadn't created the situation where that might take place. And I think that's so, that's so true. If you, if you open to it, it might happen. If you're not open to it, it's much less likely to happen. So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a practitioner of mantra. So Mm -hmm. in Judaism, it's Haga. So just, we have a mantra practice. In Judaism. So just saying Anod Milvado is a powerful mantra practice. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so practice is something that people can do to prime that pump and bring it into their everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, challenging the story or, or I don't know if that's the right word. A, a lot of times, I mean, 
Jewish people aren't trained to do this. I mean, we're rabbis, so and 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 we're we're I don't know driven to do this for some reason. But most people aren't. They don't have the background. They don't have the resources. So I, anyone can learn mantra practice if they're interested. But to to belong to a community, and and I'm not talking about a synagogue, a Stam synagogue but maybe a subset within the synagogue that sits and, and explores these things more than just as ideas. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you an example because I think I'm just being too vague. And this is not a Jewish example, but it's, it, it's a good example. So I have a teacher who's quite elderly, he's in his 80s, an Indian guy named Prasanna, and he's a disciple of a teacher of, he's in the Ramana Maharshi tradition, radical non-dual Advaita tradition of Hinduism. I mean, so non-dual Hinduism is irrelevant to them. And I would visit him periodically and he doesn't take formal students. He doesn't have, doesn't write books. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He just lives in a house and some of his students pay his rent and he hangs out and you call him on the phone and say, can I hang out with you? And he goes, yeah, whatever. And one of the times I was with him, we were just sitting in his living room and just talking, because that's all he does. You can talk about whatever you want. And then he said, what's your spiritual practice? So it was just, I thought, a stupid question. I'd been with him for years. And one of the things I do is what he taught me or what Ramana Maharshi taught. You know, just the, the, the self-inquiry, he calls it, you know, just asking, you know, who, who am I or who's having this thought or who's talking with you at the moment? And try to trace, sort of become the observer and realize that there's some mind behind the whole thing here. Some some I that isn't the Rami. Mm -hmm. And so I just sort of said that. It was, I thought it was a dumb thing to ask, and I answered it in an offhand way, wasn't paying any attention. And then there were other people in the room, and he said, So I said, you know, I asked, who am I? And then he just looked at me and he said, Are you? And I was gone. I mean, there was awareness. I saw him. I saw the people. I saw the furniture. I couldn't name anything. It was like Adam before the you know before the animals came to be named. He saw them, but he didn't know what they were. I had no. I, I there's no way to describe it. I was not asleep. I was not blanked out. But I no longer could distinguish one thing from another. It was just pure. I know I'm overstating it. No, uh, it's beautiful. How long so, do you think it lasted? I don't think it lasted more than a couple of seconds. I mm -hmm. don't know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I came back and he just was looking at me. And I said, what was that? And he said, I'm hungry. Let's go get lunch. And that was it. We never talked about it again. Wow. But coming in a community where you're having these dialogues, you could say it's like a Zen dialogue or like a Buberian rich dialogue mm -hmm. where these things can happen. Now, he, he's the teacher, but he wasn't teaching. You know, there's no leader. It was just people immersed in the quest for this awareness, just being present with one another. And, and that arose in that moment for me, no one else. I don't think maybe at another time, different people. Does that make any sense? It makes so much sense. I, I really appreciate that I've begun to create a community, a sub community at, at the synagogue, Sinai, oh, all right. uh, that is 
that is inclined towards thinking this way, the, uh, thinking about these things. We've had book clubs to to look at different different material. We've looked at a little Art Green, a little Jay Michelson, a lot of you, and we we daven together, you know, on Shabbat mornings. And what I love about it is it's really a very self selected group, and it's the people who want to be playing with these ideas and and trying them on. And and sometimes, I mean, I, I led a meditation retreat this past weekend, and it was powerful. And I had some folks who just walked away going, what was that? That was Judaism. And sure enough, uh, it was, it was beautiful, authentic, uh, active, engaged Judaism. And I felt so, so lucky to be able to introduce them to, to modes of, of, of being that were so far unknown to them. Yeah. And, and I think there are lots of Jewish people looking for that mm-hmm. and they go to Buddhism yeah. Because I was once at a conference with Ram Das, who I, I really love Ram Das. Not everything he says, because some of it's just wackadoodle. But anyway, I was with him and he it was a Jewish meditation conference and he got up and he was speaking. This is after his stroke. So he didn't actually get up. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he was in his wheelchair. But he said, I'm not quoting, but it's basically like this. He said, if he had known there was this stuff in Judaism, he wouldn't have gone to India. Yeah. Yes. I, I who think knows? That's absolutely right. Yeah. I um I have really decided in the last couple of years that that is to be my rabbinic mission. Uh, in oh. addition to all the other stuff that we do, it is to open the awareness for as many people as I can that the the, the the delivery of Judaism that we received in in elementary school the 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 myths and the and the legends and the fairy tales are are one thing but at that point where we should have been exploding onto the the metaphoric stage and and using the spirituality of, of adolescence so many walked away from from the experience after bar mitzvah and I just find that when I'm standing there on the bima on Rosh Hashanah in front of 700 people that I just I can't help but feel what you said is so true that there are so many out there who are who are hungry for this and I I have to say that Rami I'm so I'm so grateful for me the three rabbis I've been I've been relying on these last bunch of years have been you and Art Green and Jay Michelson and a, a handful of others but it's been it's been giving me permission to break beyond what I thought was the you know, somewhat the boundaries of theology. And I think when people find out that the rabbi too is figuring this out as he goes, it's really empowering. And so yeah. being able to- yeah. I'm sorry, Dominica. No, being able to point to, to materials like you've created for us has been really, really wonderful. I'm honored. I appreciate that. But I feel the same frustration about the bar and bat mitzvah kids. You know, I, I tried once. I had this idea that we should turn the bar and bat mitzvah thing into a vision quest. Uh, and it should be like, you know, Jacob going off in the wilderness and, and sleeping and then God was in this place and I didn't know it and go through this whole thing. And that should be the bar mitzvah. And I worked with, oh gosh, I can't remember his name. He, the rabbi who does the outdoor adventures in the desert. Jamie Korngold? No, it wasn't Jamie, oh. but, but it was that kind of thing yeah. anyway. And we, you know, we talked about, but then I went to my lawyer's. <laughs> in the congregation. Are you nuts? You know what the liability is to take <laughs> these kids off and do a vision quest? I mean, there was no drugs involved. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, to teach them chanting and what and, a shame. What a what an opportunity. You know, I thought it would be really cool. Somewhat be cool. differently, but but for the same reasons. I floated the idea 
very gently years ago that we should just get rid of bar mitzvah, that it's the death of our Jewish. Oh, that's another story. And yeah. it wasn't the lawyers who said, what are you kidding? But, but same yeah. reaction. But uh, using the word floating, it reminded me, I also tried to bring flotation tanks into the synagogue. Oh, cool. <laughs> they yeah. also said, you know what the liability of someone drowned? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, so we used to, this was in Miami, Florida, back in the 80s, no, 70s, no, 80s, where flotation tanks were really um, popular. So yeah. we would go, there was a, a place in, in Miami that closed around five o'clock on Saturday. And we would rent it from Motzei Shabbat. And not a lot of people wanted to do it, but they had a number of tanks and we would go and we would do Magdala. And then uh, meditation and chanting. And throughout the evening, when a tank would, you, you go and sit in the tank and then you come back out and someone else would go because there were like, I don't know, eight tanks or something. So over a few hours, everyone got to float. I love it. Because I thought that was a powerful thing to do. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. I just, I, I have to thank you again. The the ability to talk through some ideas with you that have been on my mind, to, to really hear it directly from you has meant an enormous amount. The people who have been listening to this podcast for, for you know, the 20 or so episodes I've put out have really spoken to me regularly about how important the material in Open Secrets has been. And it's given me the chance to, to point them to other material that, that continues the conversation. I cannot wait to share this this recording with with my regular listeners and and the offer by the way of sharing Shiviti with those who would like with you know recognizing its copyrighted material and and with attribution I want everyone to hear me say that if if they want to read that they should just let me know and I'll make sure that yeah. I for a copy. Thank you for inviting me to do this. It's just a lot of fun. This has been marvelous. I hope you feel much better very quickly. Thank you. I hope that spiritually this world feels better quickly as well. Um, yeah, amen. This is this is a, a profound moment where the, the rubber hits the road and our spirituality gets tested. Yeah, absolutely. Rami Shapiro, thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye.